Psalm 99, and question 101 on page 877 of the Trinity Hymnal. Give our attention to God's Word together at the close of this Lord's Day. Thankful to set aside time uh, that He may speak to us through His Word. Psalm 99. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord, and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies in the statute that he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. Question 101. Shorter catechism as we give our attention to the petitions of the Lord's Prayer at this part of the catechism. Let's read the answer together. What do we pray for in the first petition? In the first petition which is, hallowed be thy name, we pray that God would enable us and others to glorify him in all that whereby he maketh himself known, and that he would dispose all things to his own glory. Let us pray once again. O Father, speak now through your holy word for the sake of Christ and by the power of your spirit, all for your glory. Amen. It is clear in Psalm 99 that God reigns, that that is the the biblical vision of life that, that we are to have. And as we think about this relative to Uh, The first petition of the Lord's Prayer, which we always pay attention to the order of things, and thus uh, the first petition shows the the, the importance of of what it is that you're going to say. What's the first thing that we say in the Lord's Prayer? Hallowed be thy name, the glory of God. And we glorify him because he reigns, because he is king, because he is Lord, because he is ruler, because who he is in his character is worthy of our praise, because he is creator because he is 
Redeemer. So it is because of all those things and more that we are called to, to glorify our God and to live for his glory. But we don't always live for the glory of God, do we? Not every moment, indeed not every day, we don't perfectly live for God's glory. We don't perfectly recognize the kingly rule and reign of God in all things. Indeed, you could almost summarize what sin is by saying it is a failure to recognize and honor the kingship and the reign of God. If we truly knew it and lived according to it, uh, we wouldn't live breaking God's law. So we struggle with this. But as God's people, of course, we, we have a genuine desire to glorify God. Those who, who believe in Christ and trust in him genuinely, it is our desire that God would be glorified in this world, in our lives, in our hearts, in our homes. We want God to receive the glory. That's what it means to be a Christian. But the world does not recognize God's glory, generally speaking, does it? And that is indeed another problem that we run into as we consider all of these things. We want others to glorify God. We want others to ascribe to God his kingly rule and reign, his power, his sovereignty, his love, his grace. And yet we live in a world that does not give to God the honor that is due his name. So this puts us in a, a state of, of wilderness, of, of exile. We are citizens of God's kingdom, and yet the kingdoms of this earth look very different than the kingdom of our God and the kingdom of Christ. A couple of things that, that, that help us along in these ways when we ask the question, so how do we begin to think about glorifying God? How do we begin to, to think about living for the glory of God? Well, we first need faith in God's word. We, what we need is God's help so that we might see and recognize that all that we are taught about God is true. You think about Revelation chapter 4, that heavenly vision of, of what's going on in, in the throne room and the, the living creatures and the elders falling before the, the, the glory of the living God and casting their crowns before him and saying, you are worthy to receive honor and glory, power and dominion. We need faith in God's word. Faith in God's word then uh, moves us forward into worship. And as we worship, we become more like, and indeed in, in ourselves, we become more citizens of God's kingdom. We resemble those who are in the presence of God. As we gather for worship as God's people, we become embassies of God's kingdom. That's what, what this is. It's, it's an embassy of God's kingdom, right smack dab in the middle of the kingdoms of the earth. We are here to provide rest to provide safe haven for those who want to live for Christ and to, to glorify him. We provide nourishment. We give meals uh, from the heavenly storehouse of, of God's grace so that we may go forth from here, from this embassy, and carry forth the kingship of God. So we do that, but then these psalms also, these, these enthronement psalms, Psalm 93, Psalms 96 through 99, come at a very peculiar place in, in the Psalter. And one of the things that we see when we, when we begin to consider why they occur here as they do in what's called Book 4 of the Psalter, what we see is that these enthronement psalms that name the, the reign of God, if you read Psalm 93 and 96 through 99, you'll see what it's doing is, is it recognizing God's kingship. 
And what you see going on in all of these psalms is that they are prophetic. They are forward-looking to a time when the reign of God will be universally known. It's speaking of that which will one day be universally recognized. God is king. He is Lord. And everyone will one day recognize these things. So three ideas that we'll think about tonight. The first movement is this. God's name is to be hallowed. God's name is to be glorified. Secondly, I am hallowing or glorifying God's name. And third, the world will hallow or glorify God's name. So begin here, God's name is to be hallowed, glorified. This psalm affirms Yahweh's unending reign as king. And as I mentioned, if you think about the structure of the book of Psalms, uh, this is a, a good place for the Psalter to affirm just this. Book four appro- approaches this question with a bit of uncertainty. If you read the beginning of the, of the Psalter, books one and two and three, Psalms one through 89, you see an intense focus on the Davidic throne, God's anointed one, the king, the throne of, of David, that God is doing things for the sake of his anointed. And oftentimes David's experience is that his experience as God's anointed, he views the world through that lens. When people come against him, they're coming against God. They are the enemies of God. They attack him because he is the anointed one of God. But as we consider this in the the history of Israel, we know that the the Davidic throne did not have a a very long and illustrious and glorious story, did it? Got Saul first, and then David, and really kind of that's the apex of the, the kingship, David, then Solomon, and then Solomon's sons, the kingdom splits, the northern kingdom, all evil kings, southern kingdom, good signs here and there, but generally a downward trend, and you see God's people moving towards exile to the point where Samaria falls, 8th century, Jerusalem falls, 6th century, B.C., and with that, there are huge questions. God has promised that David's son will always be reigning. There will always be a a, a king on the throne, that, that he will make a kingdom will last forever. And so there are huge issues to think about. And the Psalter follows this trajectory by ending book three in the Psalms with a note of despair. What are the two most, uh, the Psalms that are most filled with anguish? Psalms 88 and 89, the, the end of book three. Just by way of example, Psalm 88 says, Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. This is the psalmist speaking to God. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. The book three ends with mostly despair. And that's because the Davidic kingship in an earthly sense fails. It disappears. It goes away. So God's people are left with these questions. Well, well, what are we going to do about this? Is, is there going to be uh, promises fulfilled? Is, is God going to allow this kingdom to continue? What's going to happen? We're going into exile. In many ways, they're looking at, at, at failure. And so book four begins at Psalm 90. To answer this question of despair, 
and the, the consideration of failed kings and evil kings, those who walked away from the Lord and his law, by affirming what? What is it that we, we read? If you read Psalms 90 through 99, you have all of those enthronement psalms and, and other beautiful psalms too. What is the, the sense that you get? The sense that you get at that point in the book of Psalms is God is king. God reigns. He is king. He was, oh, he was king. He always has been king, and he always will be the king of creation, the universe. You see, it doesn't matter if an earthly plot of land goes away. It does not matter if an earthly kingdom of Israel is dissolved for the time being. God reigns. And so book four begins with who wrote Psalm 90? Moses, right? And what is Moses known for? Leading his people out of Egypt, leading God's people out of Egypt into the wilderness and, and leading them during the wilderness wanderings. They had no, no land, no plot of land on this earth. They had nothing to, to, to cling to in that sense. And Moses gives us these beautiful words in Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. You see, he's saying that. What you need to remember is that Moses is saying that as the leader of a people who have really no permanent dwelling place. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So in that part of the Psalms, in the part of the Psalms that we're considering tonight, God is king. When there are no human and earthly kings to trust in, God's people trust in him alone as our forever and eternal king. Psalm 93, then, the Lord reigns. He's robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. His throne lasts forever, but it's different in, in, in kind and quality than earthly thrones. Psalm 99, verse 1, he sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. So we see this is, this is a heavenly reign. It goes beyond earthly thrones, of course, and that's the point. And so Psalm 99 affirms that the name of God is to be praised because he always reigns as king. The Lord is great. He is exalted over all the peoples. Verse 2. Verse 3. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. So God is to be praised because of his holiness. Exalt the Lord and worship him. Holy is he. We just sang it, right? Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his holy mountain. For the Lord our God is holy. What does it mean to be holy? Set apart. Set apart. The biblical vision of God and the heart of the believer affirms that we worship God because he is unlike us. He is set apart. Modern ideas of God often think of God in terms of uh, either the world is an extension of God or God is an extension of the world. So these lines between God and the world are blurred. But the, what we affirm, and certainly in, in our uh, Reformed standards, and what we see in Scripture most of all, is that God is qualitatively different than us. There is an infinite qualitative distinction between the Creator and His creation. And there is a, there's a, there's a separation there that we need to see and recognize. 
And so when we name God in his holiness, certainly holiness is connected to, to moral purity as well, but his holiness is that he is set apart, he is different. We praise him because the distance between the creator and the creature is so great. We praise him for his holiness, for he is not like we are. He's also to be praised because of the characteristics of of his kingdom, as we see there in verse 4. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. So where his reign is known, where his rule is known, there will be two characteristics that that are seen when God's law and his word is honored. Fairness and righteousness, right? So you have a a, a level playing field. The way is plain and level. There are not different people walking on different paths. And then righteousness. Why? Because the judgments of God promote that which is truly morally good and, and pure. So the contrast here in Psalm 99 is to human kings. Human kings, their judgment is often flawed. And in human kingdoms, Favor is given to certain people. The playing field is, is not level. I, I recently have been, been reading a book that details a lot of corruption in kind of the elite financial world, and you see the way in which uh, it's all connected to, to geopolitics and, and various things like that. And you just understand, you realize, you read something like that, the, the playing field is not level. There's a lot that's, that's rigged before it begins and special consideration that people have. And what you see as a characteristic of God and his kingdom, he's what? He's no respecter of persons. He's not impressed with earthly or human status. The idea of justice is that justice is the same for those who have much and those who have little. And that's a way to protect everyone involved. Because what, what do you see in, in corrupt earthly kingdoms? Oftentimes people get special considerations, but then uh, oftentimes a, a tyrant or a ruler will decide he might not like somebody that he gave special attention to all of a sudden, and now they're in trouble. And so the kind of justice that's promoted in God's kingdom, a level playing field, is one that protects rich and poor alike. And of course, flowing forth from God's character is that which is morally good, that which is morally pure. And all that he speaks and does is good and right and true. So when we consider him in contrast to to earthly kings and earthly rulers, earthly legislators, those who continually let the people of the earth down in various ways, we stand in awe of God, for he is a perfect ruler. He's a perfect king. All that he says and does is wise and good and true. God is to be praised because he does not need an earthly throne, an earthly palace, or land in order to execute his reign and his rule. Verse 6, Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord, and he answered them. Moses, Aaron, Samuel here named as, as men who pray. And they prayed to God, and God answered them. Now, what do earthly kings do in order to to issue a decree, in order to to send people out to to execute the the decrees of the king? What do they need? They they need a throne. They need people attending to them. He needs an army in order to make sure that his, uh, his operation is carried out. But God does not need that. 
He sits enthroned in heaven. And so as his people, as his servants pray to him, and here Moses and Aaron would have been in the wilderness praying to God, and what did he do? He hears their prayer, and he answers them. This is a great encouragement to us, even as we think about the Lord's Prayer uh, here this evening. Because, as we'll see, we consider our own place in redemptive history as one of wilderness, one of exile, one of wandering. And we pray to God, and, and, and how do we know that God can, can execute or answer our prayers? He doesn't need an earthly kingdom. He doesn't need an earthly palace. He doesn't need his people to possess land in order to do these things. He is enthroned in heaven. God is to be praised, finally, because his grace and his justice are a mystery to us. Psalm 99, verse 8, O Lord, our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. It seems somewhat out of place, uh, verse 8, where we, we recognize that God forgives, but then he also punishes sin. But in the context of uh, worship, of ascribing to God all that which is due his name, we're naming back to him aspects of his character that we see, that we recognize, for which we worship him. And we realize one of the reasons we worship him is because he is full of mercy and justice. He's perfect in both. His justice is eternal, and his grace and his mercy is eternal as well. So he's a forgiving God, but also an avenger of wrongdoing. God forgives sin, but he does not just dismiss it. Here, there may be an allusion to Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but what? But who will by no means clear the guilty? So God is to be praised for all of these things. He is to be praised for his holiness. He is to be praised because he's not like earthly kings. He is to be praised because he does not need earthly land or palace or throne. He is to be praised because his mercy and his grace are perfect and they are not in, contra in contrast or they, are, they do not contradict one another. For all of these things, God is to be praised. He is to be hallowed. He is to be glorified by us. And if we catch that biblical vision of who God is, there will be no question in our hearts that we are to glorify and honor this God. So God's name is to be hallowed. And secondly, or secondly uh, tonight, this, I am hallowing his name. Let's consider how that uh, comes to be. This psalm, obviously, is a call to praise. It's a, a worshipful psalm. And Isra Israelites in exile or even the post-exilic community would have, would have heard this call. Now, what are the questions that an Israelite would have had in his or her mind when they're in exile? They've lost the land. Or they come back to the land, and what is it? The, the glory has departed. <laughs> uh, things are not the way that they were or, or what they heard about in the days of David and, and Solomon. And so what are the questions that, that an Israelite would have had at, at that time in, in, in their history? Probably two. The first question may have been this. Has God abandoned us? Has he forgotten us? Has he, has he left us behind? Is he going to find a new people? 
Secondly, or is God simply not powerful enough to sustain and fulfill his promises? Those would be two questions of of the doubting heart. Two questions that plague many of our hearts at times. Has God abandoned me? Has he forgotten me? Or is God not powerful enough to, to answer the prayers that I have? Is God not powerful enough to, to, to be aware of my needs? Does he not hear what I'm saying to him? Because I'm saying it often. You see, this is the battle of faith versus unbelief. Do you believe that God reigns the way that Psalm 99 describes him? Do you believe that God reigns when what you see with your eyes testifies to something different? Whether it be the, the many trials, challenges of this world, you see a, a world that seems to be dissolving into some form of chaos. Maybe it's your own life. Maybe things in your life are, are falling apart in, in various ways. Do you believe that God reigns? You see, at most times in the history of God's people, we have not had the earthly palace or throne that was there in the time of David and Solomon. Think about it. Abraham, wandering, the man of faith, wandering in Canaan, yet uh, not possessing the land, slavery in Egypt, wilderness wanderings, the exile, the pilgrim church of, of the New Testament. Right? This is, this is the, the normal way of things for God's people. That the manifestation of, of God's kingdom is not directly connected to a Davidic throne and an earthly palace. And so those two questions that, are, that would plague perhaps the Israelite in exile will plague us as well. Has God abandoned me? Is he not powerful enough to fulfill his promises? Does he not hear me? And so this means that faith and worship are central to the recognition of of God's reign and, and his kingship. First faith, do we believe when it says God reigns? Do you believe the Bible when it says that God reigns? That he sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Do you believe, when you read Revelation 4, do you believe that that is a true picture of what's going on in heaven right now? Do you believe that these living creatures, these, these angels, uh, that the, the, the souls who have been uh, raised up, as we read in Revelation 20, do you believe that they are around the throne of the Lamb, worshiping the risen and exalted Christ? This also then connects uh, to worship as well. Houses of worship, as I mentioned, are, are, are embassies of God's kingdom. We worship at God's footstool. We name together the holiness of God. And so we need those two things together. We need faith in God's word and a worshipful heart working together in order to hallow the name of God from our hearts. When we're praying, God, hallowed be thy name, and we're thinking about it relative to our own hearts, what we're thinking is, give me a heart of faith in your word and a heart of worship that seeks to honor you and glorify you in a way that is in accord with who you are. Give me a heart that believes your word and all that it describes about you. We believe what the Bible says about God. 
He's holy. He's sovereign. He's worthy of praise. He's unchanging and unchangeable. It also means, not only does it mean all of his attributes, which make us stand in awe of him, it also means that he is our God, as it says in verses 5, 8, and 9 of Psalm 99. There's immense comfort in this. The God of the Bible is our God. We chose the right one. (laughs) Of course, it wasn't our choice, was it? We ended up with the right one. This is our God. I was, uh, when my football coach was addressing us several weeks ago, of course, he's, uh, we had to recognize his wife, who is an outstanding woman, very, uh, very selfless, made a lot of sacrifices so that her husband could be a, a football coach who was gone most of the time. And, uh, and while he was giving his final address to us, uh, he turns to his wife, and he was thanking her and everything. It was very emotional. And, but he says, I, uh, I married the most selfless person in the world. She has no equal, he says. It was a very nice moment. And we, we kind of knew, you know, she was a very, a very selfless woman. But he said, she has no equal. So uh, when we think about God and saying this God is, is our God, it's something like the man who takes great delight in his wife. The man who says, I am so astonished and astounded that this is the woman God has given to me. This is our God the one described in Scripture, the one who is perfect in all of his ways, the one who is holy and righteous and just. He has no equal. So we believe that God reigns no matter the circumstances. Long before the monarchy in Israel, Yahweh was king. See, that's the point. That's what the Psalms of the 90s, uh, Psalm 90 through 99, that's what they're teaching us. Before David ascended to the throne, before Saul, God was king. Before Solomon, God was king. He was reigning, and he reigns always. And so that is why we can adopt this pilgrim mentality of being in exile, in a sense, strangers and aliens, as 1 Peter describes us. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, If you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So in light of all that, we live with trustful, worshipful hearts. And then finally, the world will one day hallow God's name. The world will one day hallow God's name. The enthronement psalms have an implicit prophetic message. One day God's reign will be fully known. Listen to what the way that one scholar puts it. Yahweh's reign as king will be manifest with new power in the future. Psalms 96 through 99 anticipate a new theophany, that's appearance of God, a new song of advent and powerful saving works. These psalms throb with latent, if not overtly expressed, anticipation of a new coming of Yahweh. He is coming to judge the world. So these psalms are really, there's a connection to the Christmas season, isn't there? The connection to Christmas becomes clear when you think about it this way. See, Christ came as as a humble king, offering salvation to those who believe the gospel and trust his work. He came to advance the kingdom of God. It was a coming of the king. Our faith in Christ is a pilgrim faith. We see his reign while we walk through the wilderness. 
And as those who, who recognize that his first coming was the coming of a king, and that he is now reigning and exalted and ruling on high, we worship him as the one who lives and who reigns and who rules, but who will come again in power and glory one day. So it recognizes that Christ has come. He has received a kingdom that will last forever, and he shall reign forever and ever, and he will come again to make his kingdom fully known and fully realized. So in the meantime, what are we to do? We are to hallow the name of God by worshiping the one to whom God has given the name above every name. Philippians 2, Jesus Christ. And as we worship God in the New Testament, the, the, the way that we covenantally address God most often is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So even God the Father is known in his relation to Jesus Christ. He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So as Bible-believing Christians, what do we do? We have faith in the Bible, all that it says about the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ, all that it says about the return of Jesus Christ, we hallow the name of God by worshiping and exalting Jesus Christ and God the Father in his name. See, this is the heart of the one who reads Psalm 99, who believes its words, and who believes what it says about what is yet to come. The king has come. The king reigns. The king is coming again. May we live in light of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise and adoration for your word, and we ask that you will allow us uh, this evening to reflect upon these things and to live in thankfulness for all that you have done. We thank you for sending your son to this earth, uh, born in a, in a manger and lived and died perfect life, a sinner's death, on behalf of sinners uh, like us, we thank you for forgiving us through him. We pray in his name. Amen. We stand to sing, Wondrous King, All Glorious.